Your breath is getting shallower and shallower. Like you can't inhale without a billion swords crossing in your throat. Your chest feels heavy and you are wondering how you are still able to defy gravity and stand up carrying the Iron Throne. Your muscles tremble and tense up and your vision resembles dawn in the English countryside in November. You see distorted faces all around you, the menacing smiles like a crowd surrounding you with pitchforks. If this sounds familiar, congratulations, you likely have experienced the witch wound. People think of the witch wound as being just about people who have been persecuted in a past life for being witches, not being able to step into their power and be open about their craft with other people, but there's so much more to it. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about the witch wound and how we can walk with goddesses of light and shadow to heal ourselves and the collective. Welcome to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast, season two. Tune in every Thursday for captivating conversations about life, business, and magic. Created by a cosmic witch for the modern empowered woman seeking to craft a more magical lifestyle. But if you're not a woman, you're welcome too. I'm your host, Alexis Neve. Ready to live life limitless? Then, Let's dive in. There was definitely something in the air because I started researching these uh, a couple of weeks ago. Then last week I was listening to That Witch podcast and Danny was talking about the witch one too. I wanted to talk about it because of something that I briefly touched upon with Angelica last week, namely Persephone. Not only her, but also the other goddesses in European mythology that walk the fine line between light and shadow. I'm a major geek for this kind of stuff, as you probably can tell by now. Unless you're new here, in which case welcome, I hope you will find this content valuable and entertaining and stick around. 
Speaking of which, I'm so grateful for all of you who come back week after week to keep me company across the time and space energetic divide. I'm a Scorpio moon, so I feel the feels, like I legit cry every time a root in Hakuaki gets to August 1868. In fact, whenever I go down a self-deprecating spiral about how my ex is right and I'm heartless, Someone should just point out to me how Akita came to be my Oshi, since, and I know it'll shock a lot of people, but it has nothing to do with his voice actor. I'm rambling now. What I meant to say is that I'm better thinking about how I need to express my feelings to others, so I never really tell you all about how much I appreciate you and your support, but I do. Hard hands. Going back to today's topic, I'm sticking to European lore again because this is my cultural heritage as well as my main area of study in my degrees. As we've discussed last week, it's not just goddesses that have this duality to them. And it's not just Hades either. The reason I'm focusing on goddesses is partly personal coming from a patriarchal religious background, and partly a feminist one. Most women alive today were raised in a patriarchal society with good girl conditioning, even if the specific worldview underneath it changes in different parts of the world. There are few matriarchal societies left. While there is a degree of stigma around male violence, the darkness that is associated with these goddesses is something that has been relegated to our shadow and feared for centuries. Since witchcraft is first and foremost about self-empowerment, it's important that we get back in touch with these aspects of our personality and integrate them. If you are not someone who identifies as a woman, you still know people who do, and you will have your own biases around what femininity looks like. This topic is a slight departure from the idea of star magic, because none of the myths I'm going to talk about is directly connected to the stars, or a planet, since we only have the moon and Venus as female archetypes, if you don't count the asteroids. I'm still taking questions for the finale Q&A, but I'm also going to talk about the asteroids then. I already touched on the idea that magic was not quite as far removed from mainstream culture as we may believe back in the Natural Magic episode at the beginning of this season. There is also a lot of witchcraft that blended with Christianity in the folk magic of Europe, or at least that's the case in countries that remained Catholic, or areas where the reach of government impositions during the Reformation was limited. A lot of stuff was transmitted down from mother to daughter while stripped of the more metaphysical elements. I'm fairly certain that one of my great-grandmothers was a witch, but if I tried to suggest that to my mother, she'd be disowning me. I wish I believed that you can communicate with the spirits of your ancestors, because I'd love to ask her directly. Anyway, 
two things stand out to me when it comes to the rise and fall of witchcraft in Europe. First, the black magic was always illegal. What didn't fall under it became superstition under the Christianization, and there was an obvious drive to eradicate it in favor of perfect observance of the Christian faith on behalf of the authorities. And it never really worked. It was not until the 1400s that what we think of as the witch hunts came about. And that was the time when occult texts and natural magic came into the conversation. When I say conversation, I'm talking about educated men who could read and write Latin, which brings me to this second topic. People like Giordano Bruno and the others who fell on the wrong side of ecclesiastical courts for their thinking, and let me stress that it was not all of the people who dealt with metaphysics, were not accused of witchcraft in the way we understand it. They were accused of holding heretical views. Practicing or not practicing magic didn't come into play. In fact, a fair few trials were around people denying the material reality of evil as demon and spirits. While atheism was a bigger deal for the church than other deviation from orthodoxy could be its own episode. And let me know if you're actually interested in that. Anyway, the accusation of witchcraft was basically an accusation of being a satanist in the sense of mirroring what religious people would do in the church, but doing it for the devil plus some other perversions of the natural order that do not take place in Christianity, of course. Like the saints can do miracles through God's power, witches too gain supernatural abilities through their pact with the devil, who was an angel at one time anyway. But that's a story for another time. Want to take a wild guess? These people were not women. In fact, many were priests. Heck, the Templars were among them. I wrote a paper on the trials in question back in my undergraduate days. That was fun. Anyway, how come then we think of the witch trials as one of the great acts of injustice against innocent women like healers and midwives from the patriarchy? Well, it's hard to deny that Christianity created a culture that was hostile to women at the very least in the hands of the actual people who walked the earth centuries ago. I'm not here to have a debate in feminist theology about whether it is inherent in the teachings or just interpretations. You take the side you want on this one. I don't care. The witch wound is real, but it's a wound that affected everyone, not just women, and it affected the persecutor too, because so often the biggest critics of something are those projecting their shadows on someone else. I'm sure we can all think of examples of this kind of hypocrisy from high-profile politicians. Also, just official executions alone, without counting trials that ended in pardons and the popular violence that was outside the bounds of the law, means that 40,000 to 60,000 people have died in what was often a process that did not meet its own legal requirements, and definitely not moral ones. Not just ours, but also of the time, 
As among the various debates going on in Christendom, there was one on the morality of the witch trials too. It was a big deal and it's normal and understandable that we feel the way we feel about ourselves in the context of a culture that is drenched with this blood. Anyway, by the mid-1500s we began to see a shift in what the accusations of witchcraft looked like, especially in the British Isles. It is at this time that the focus shifts from men to women, and the witch trials begin to look like what we imagine when we hear the term. If you want to deep dive into James system first, I recommend you check out some recent episodes of Heads Positive, as they go into great detail about it. The man was single-handedly responsible for the witch craze, which also had the consequence of killing what little political power women had in previous centuries. At the end of the day, divide and conquer has been proven effective time and time again. If women can't gather to organize around shared grievances because they'd be accused of holding a party for the devil, then they can never fight for a betterment of their situation in the eyes of the state. It was not the same all across Europe though. In places like the Iberian Peninsula, the Inquisition was still focused on heresy more than witchcraft. While in southern Germany, it was worse than Scotland, which was the worst part of Britain for the trials. Surprise. Anyway, by the time of the Enlightenment, the tide had shifted again and the rationalism of the age made laws around witchcraft become laws around charlatans. Still, what this history really shows us is that the paranoia of people who have power can be enough to persecute other humans on spurious grounds. And I'm talking about these in this episode because it is my opinion that one reason why the witch wound is triggered around anything that is remotely powerful about being a woman, let alone anything that is witchy per se, is directly linked to the paranoia of some powerful men 500 years ago. That's not to say that things were resolved when the laws changed in the 1700s, as there have been cases of violence against people, mostly women, out of fear of there being witches as late as, well, it's still going on. There are many people for which it isn't safe to be open about being a witch. It's a privilege that I live in a country where I can take a 30 minutes flight and be legally married in a pagan ceremony and the worst thing I need to worry about is losing potential clients for my photography business. Even so, the tension that comes every time I press record on this podcast is real. I wanted to discuss the truth uh, around the witch wound without this sensationalistic million of innocent women narrative because it's relevant to how we alchemize our own light and shadow to come out on the other side as agents of change. As Dani pointed out in her episode that I mentioned earlier, when the numbers aren't as big as we think they are, it shows us that the odds were that we may have been the oppressor. If you believe in past lives, 
that's literally the case. If you don't, you still carry that in your DNA. We know from epigenetic that change for ourselves changes not only our sphere of influence in the here and now, but also the future generations, especially those related to us if we have children. If we carry the trauma of our ancestors, our descendants will carry theirs and ours too. I don't want to be an ancestor that gave my bloodline more trauma still, so I'm here to invite you to think about your craft from a wider angle. Women have been kept small for far too long, and that's true even now. If you feel the call to do something about it, I hope the rest of this episode will be helpful information on how to get started. It's a theme that I intend to bring back in future episodes as well. This rant was sponsored by the recent eclipse season and Pluto in Aquarius. Going back to our goddesses, I think I should define what I meant by darkness when I picked them. Some of them, to me, aren't very dark, but they have associations with war, and since anger is very much one of the emotions that women suppress, that makes it a shadow, and so I have included them here, especially since they aren't goddesses of war and war only. They are patrons of multiple things that live in this tension that I brought to this season of the podcast, which is the idea that we both have light and darkness, and we can have a better experience of being human when we reconcile with it and use it intentionally in our craft. Among the war goddesses we find Pallas Athena, to whom the asteroid corresponds. There are different myths where Pallas was her own entity, but it was used as a form of address for Athena in her capacity as the warrior goddess and protector of Athens. She was also the goddess of wisdom and of weaving. As one of the major goddesses in the Greek pantheon, there's enough material for a whole podcast series on her. But I thought she deserved to be included because she has an interesting story as far as perceptions of her go. As Christianity first spread west, she was being seen as immodest and immoral. But as early as the 4th century, the cultural imagination had overlapped on her the unrealistic ideals attributed to the Virgin Mary. To this day, it's possible that we have a view of her that is sanitized compared to the goddess that was worshipped by the Greeks, who seems quite badass, even though I can take on board the criticism that she seems to do a lot to help men be the heroes. Over in Rome, Juno, a patroness, had a similar makeup, though she is not the direct correlation to Athena, as that is Minerva. She's Hera's counterpart. In fact, she appears to have an extremely rich theology and be little short of the idea of the divine that comes with monotheism, to the point that many scholars would consider her just the whole of the divine feminine. While maybe not as overreaching as Juno, Other warrior goddesses of Europe who have contrasting associations are the Morrigan in the Celtic Pantheon and Freya in the Norse one. There is also Bast, 
on the other side of the Mediterranean in Egypt, who is goddess of war, protection of lower Egypt and the pharaoh, the sun, perfumes, ointments and embalming. I don't know about you, but war and perfumes sound like an awesome combination. Anyway, the Morrigan is an Irish triple goddess, which in itself is about the full spectrum of the experience of womanhood. She has a number of variations across the Celtic lands and is considered for this reason a pan-Celtic goddess. Different accounts consider her a triple self by one person, while others see the Morrigan as a collective name for three sisters. Either way, she or they are associated with war, fate and livestock, which leads to the overall interpretation of her or them as a goddess of sovereignty. She's also not the only goddess to have this sense of a continuum between life and death to her. Maybe because it's the dark and spooky Scorpio theme some of us are obsessed with while most pretend it's not a thing, but I think it's beautiful that we see care for nature in goddesses of war. Anyway, Freya in the Norse pantheon also has a duplicity to her since she is goddess of love, beauty, fertility, sex, war, gold, and a type of magic foreseen and influence in the future that I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. Furthermore, she's the most beautiful of all the goddesses in the pantheon. Just this morning, I came across another rat-trad anti-feminist meme about how we should reject feminism by being beautiful instead of smart, and it made me feel once again closer to Freya, who was my first deity I ever got close to. One other goddess with a strong association between death and nature is, as a matter of fact, Persephone's mother, Ceres or Demeter. The Roman name is what was given to the asteroid. She is better known as a goddess of agriculture, but among her patronages we find funerals. Sacrifices were given to her to help the deceased into the underworld. And of course Persephone herself, who is the goddess of vegetation and the queen of the underworld alongside her husband Aedes. It's a bit of a cliche in witching line circles, to be honest, but the quote about how if she can be both we too are allowed not to pick a side between being all love and light and dark and spooky. It is the truth. Now, it's probably obvious to most people, but I sometimes forget to think about it intentionally. Being a goddess of nature has death and ugliness at its core as much as beauty and bounty. It makes no sense whatsoever that we treat death as something far removed from our own human experience. Also, arguably a dark goddess is Kate, the goddess of witchcraft, with a connection to being a moon goddess and one to the underworld, including being the guide for Persephone on her way back to Earth. 
She is also the goddess of boundaries and crossroads, and of the home, specifically as a guardian against the restless spirits of the dead that had not crossed the threshold. I think her correspondences have an element of light to it, like a lantern at night, rather than something flashy like the rest of this list, but she is a triple goddess and therefore I think she belongs on this list. Before we move on to the forecast for the week, I wanted to dedicate some space to a figure that is considered a goddess by many in witch spaces, and even if you only consider her a myth or literary character, I think she is the archetype of the dual goddess that has alchemized both light and darkness, and that is Morgan Le Fay. She is best known as the archetypal enchantress and sorceress, with all of the dark and powerful and even sexual vibes that go with it. But she is also a healer and death doula, a goddess of the liminal space. She freely chooses her own lovers, causing a bit of trouble in the legends, and holds power in her relationships with men. But Far from being a domineering and selfish woman, only focused on what she wants, she served the kingdom as a skilled healer, a tradition that we still see in the healing springs of Glan Stonebury. She guided King Arthur's transition into the afterlife, but also we can see this ethereal aspect of her in her connection to Avalon itself being the island across the waters. Her connection to death shows in a way not dissimilar to Hades, as a deity of transformation and letting go. She's a fairy queen who rules over Avalon as one of a sisterhood of nine and a high priestess, guardian of the Holy Grail, a symbol of all that it means to be a woman fully embodied. And because she appears in literary sources that are much later than the pre-Christian goddesses, there is a lot of lore that we can use to connect with what she represents. That's something I would encourage anyone who wants to explore what it means to be a woman outside of the restricted boundaries of niceness, that you will do it, whether it's for yourself or to better appreciate the women in your life. I hope that whatever you view deities and walking with them, this list provided uh, inspiration and was helpful to you in deepening your witchy journey. But before we go, it's time for our tarot card and transit forecast for the week. I may have ranted for 20 minutes, but I'm not going to leave you without homework. Our card today is card zero, the fool. It's the protagonist of the archetypal journey of the major arcana. And it's universally considered to be a card about new beginnings and taking leaps of faith. I actually love the imagery in the mystical manga tarot deck as it shows a court jester 
carrying a wooden replica of the wands from the suit of wands. Made of wood so fresh we see sprouts. It's a sad looking figure, like Pierrot, and what looks like the sun is shining in a dark sky over a dark land. He carries baggage over his shoulder, his dog faithfully at his side. We see a road behind him, but not where he came from, so we can assume he is already far from home. I talk a lot about the fool in the book that I'm writing, so I could spend the next hour talking about it, but the power of the tarot is in bringing it back to what we are doing. It's the last week of Taurus season, and in human design we are transiting gates in the throat for the whole month. I don't use the system as much as I do traditional astrology, but I happen to know that and it seems interesting in the context of pulling the fool. Maybe you don't have any new things you are doing, but you may be taking a leap of faith in expressing things you haven't before, so it's still relevant to you. Over in the cosmos, we see this emphasis. Our favorite trickster planet, Mercury, is in retrograde until the 15th at 5.17am Central European time and will be in a set style with Saturn on the 12th and then move on to a set style with Venus on the 13th, 10.41am and 4.43am CET for the exact aspect respectively. A good time for intellectual pursuits, one and connecting with others, the other. Since it's retrograde, it could be fruitful to take time to look at how we approach those things if they are relevant to us. On the 13th also, Venus will be in a trine with Saturn, exact at 8.58am. This is a harmonious aspect for issues of commitment in relationships, not just romantic ones. On the 15th at 3.44pm, Mars will be in a trine with Neptune, a good transit for charitable walk. On the 16th, we have the biggest transit of the week, with Jupiter ingressing into Taurus at 7.20pm. We'll then be squaring Pluto two days later on the 18th at 3.10am. Jupiter in Taurus you might have guessed, is our fool's moment. It's a transit about new beginning. Whatever is created, tours will bring to life in the material. David Odyssey, who, if you read Witchy Musing, you will know is one of my favorite astrology writers to read, put it beautifully that the first three signs of the Zodiac are a creative trilogy. I might expand on that in the Gemini newsletter, actually. Please check it out on Substack. But it's true that Taurus, being an Earth sign, is a sign of growth to begin with. And Jupiter is the planet of expansion. Everything about a sign's energy is amplified by its presence. Whatever your fool's moment is about, you have a choice. You either take the leap or you don't. Things can go awfully wrong, sure, but they can also go right. 
If you don't take the leap, you'll be in the same place anyway, or just move backwards going back to where you came from. Jupiter square Pluto is a positive transit for success too, even though people are trained to see squares as negative aspects. The hard sign of the transit is that with great power comes great responsibility. A fair and balanced lord of the underworld comes in to remind the boisterous lord of the sky that there is such a thing as going too far, even when it's an abundance of a good thing. Think of the people who win the lottery and can't hold on to the money and end up bankrupt really fast. This aspect is here to warn you not to do that and how integration and somatic healing and all of the spiritual things you can associate with Pluto are there for you to keep the check and balances. Lastly, even if it happens after the next episode comes out, and mention it again, on the 18th we have the Sunset Style Neptune. As a transit, it's also a good manifestation date. And I was not planning the episode for next week deliberately to be time with this transit, but it's a good one if you are interested in exploring a bigger vision for your life and how to make it happen in practice. In fact, manifestation will be the topic of season three, but I'll talk more about that in the last episode of this season. Until next time, keep living in wonder. Thank you for spending your time with me today. I really appreciate you being a part of this community. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends and family and consider giving it a five-star rating and review on Apple or Spotify to help me reach more people who would love it too. You can also email me with your questions and comments at starryskypodcast.gmail.com Subscribe to my monthly newsletter, Witchy Musings, on Substack, or find me mostly lurking on Instagram at This is Alexis Neve. Thanks to Jenna Sword for the cover art and Purple Planet for the music. Until next time, keep living in wonder.